From a cubicle at Initech, it's the IGN DigiGuys. Please welcome two men who know what PC load letter means, Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. Clearly one of our listeners knows what it means, Corey. That was written by Eric Altieri. Please give him back his stapler. <laughs> I'll, build the, I'll burn the building down. Um, always got to love a good, uh, a good office space reference, right, Mark? Don't you want I, I've never, uh, office space? You know, it took me years to get onto office space. Really? For years, I didn't, I didn't get it. Oh, my Did gosh. Not get that it. First time I saw that film, I, I expected nothing and laughed myself so completely delirious really oh so funny now i kind of get it more yeah but i have to admit at the time i didn't get it that's funny because you work for you work in a corporate environment and not my cubicle experience is relatively limited well at the time i didn't yeah at the time i was a freelance producer i was i was the big dog i didn't you know those office space was for the people who worked for me got it so basically i was the i was gary cole you, you. I, I should tell everybody. Mark has been cracking himself up for the last ten minutes reading these. Um, oh, you can't explain that. Well, How they're the, they're, it? they're the quote mashups, right? Where there's a photograph. You, you, you put a completely misconstrued quote with a picture with a, a person, and none of them match. Like you know, use the force. Harry Gandalf, and it's a picture of you know uh, Spock or something. <laughs> well, there's, there's two funny ones. One is. Uh, uh, the quote, with great power comes great responsibility, Batman, with a picture of the Punisher on it. And there's another funny one, um, the funniest one in the world. I, I really want to make a T-shirt out of this. There's a shot of this. There's, there's a photograph, uh, the classic hero pose of Captain Kirk, you know, William Shatner from the 66 show. And the quote is, make it so, number one. And it's attributed to Captain Janeway. I, 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 I think this mem is about... Maybe sixty-five years old, and we're finally getting around to it. Oh, really? Is it uh, that probably? <clears throat> well, anyway. anyway. So be it. We are here to talk about DVDs and Blu-rays and all things in between, whatever else may be in between. We should start talking about Divix, like the Divix release of the week. We really should. Or how about um, the HD uh, DVD release? Of the yeah, week? yeah. The uh, maybe the um, RCA uh, movie disc. What was that called? I don't know. Can we start the show? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Wait now. Would now. Did the show not, not actually start, and now it's starting, or was no? It it, it actually started. Oh, so we've been recording. For the we've last been recording three minutes. Yes, boring everybody with Absolutely. our non- nonsense. Absolutely. Well, then let's uh, let's not bore people anymore. You know what? Um, we have Mark was saying even before the show. This is this is probably the first big double dip Blu-ray, and uh, this is the Big Mama, the 70th anniversary uh, limited edition anniversary edition of Casablanca. Uh, for those who are out there screaming and cursing the world because they thought that that first big, splashy Casablanca Blu-ray box set would be the uh, the last time they'd ever have to buy this movie, as opposed to the other three times, I think, that it was released on DVD. Um, I'm sorry. Not so. You have to go out and get it again. And I don't normally say that, but even though the last... And I think we talked about this at the time of the previous release. The um, the transfer was is too crisp. It's too clean. And a lot of people complained that they took out, with their, with their digital noise reduction, their DNR, that took out way too much of the grain, which was always part of the charm in Casablanca. The photography you know, needs that grain. It needs that 1942 feel. And uh, here we are on a 70th anniversary. They've cleaned it up. And it's, uh, it's got the grain back. Not that the previous release was bad. It just needed, it needed to look more like a vintage movie than a, 
you know than a, than a high def black and white movie. But uh, this has this has got uh, this is really absolutely gorgeous. They did a great job. It's a brand new 4K scan that they did this transfer from. Uh, so the film's been properly done completely, and it is loaded with unbelievable extras. Uh, and and you know what? You don't need to hang on to uh, any of those old DVDs for coasters anymore because you get four coasters with this Blu-ray. You know, I didn't see Casablanca. No, you know, I didn't see Casablanca for the first time until like four years ago. Really? Well, here's the thing: I, I'd gotten the Casablanca uh, DVD. Yes. First was you know, it was a big DVD set, then it was a big Blu-ray set. Now it's an, it's 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 another big Blu-ray yes. set. Well, I got this slam bam Casablanca DVD mm-hmm. and didn't want to want to admit to anybody that I'd never seen the movie. Now when Casablanca came out on DVD, it was a big deal. It was one of the big classics of all time, and at the time DVD was finally getting around to the greats. And each time a great film would be would be released on DVD, it was kind of a big deal. And I had never seen it, and then I just refused to see it, even though I had the DVD, because I liked the, the joke of being able to say that a film critic, a member of the LA Film Critics Association, had never seen Casablanca. And then I got the Blu-ray, even though I had never seen that either, and then a couple of years ago, I said, you know what, I think I was sick, and I was sitting at home, I said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch Casablanca. Sweet. First time ever. Sweet. It was so good. It's great. It's a great movie. It's an unbelievable film. It's so good. Yeah, it's. I mean, there's a reason why this is always up there with the greatest movies of all time because it's so iconic. You know, there's so many great lines. I mean, round up the usual suspects and you know, on and on and on and on. It's fabulous. It was. It was Humphrey Bogart. It was. I, I think this is for this Humphrey Bogart's first pure romantic. Yes, it was non gangstery. It was. It kind was. Of a role. And it was. It was definitive. And for Ingrid Bergman as well. I mean, this was you know a, a legendary pairing. It really was, and it still is. And Bergman, by the way, who always had to be lit from the left side. Yeah. Because that was the, her that was preferred the side. That's it. Well, and by the way, it's Streisand's too. Is that right? Yeah. You you almost never ever see Streisand uh, from the right side. In movies, check it out. Watch it. Always, always left side. Um, anyway, what do you get here? You get a whole bunch of stuff other than the Blu-rays, other than you know Blu-ray one and two, and then also a DVD. Should point that out. You can all, the, the movie also comes on a DVD if you want to you know throw it on and have force the kids to watch a good movie in the car. Uh, but uh, everything else here, you get a collectible sixty-page booklet with photos and notes and production stuff and drawings and all kinds of fun things. Um, it's more of kind of a souvenir thing. It's not like a book that you're going to ever sit down and really read. Uh, and then a little reproduction of a French poster, and um, it's just gorgeous. Extras. My goodness, the extras. Uh, commentary by Roger Ebert, which is uh, fabulous. We've, we've heard that before. Obviously, that is not recent. A commentary by Rudy Belmer, who's also a uh, film historian. That one is outstanding as well. Uh, a lot of stuff that you've already seen. Uh, you must remember this: the Warner Brothers story, uh, the Brothers Warner, which is the uh, a documentary on the on the Warner Brothers. Jack Warner, uh, the Last Mogul, which is not to be confused with the movie The Last Mogul, which is about Lou Wasserman. Uh, I think uh, Jack Warner is probably the real Last Mogul. Lou Wasserman is kind of like the post mogul mogul, but nonetheless, we won't argue about that. Or the Last Tycoon. Yes. As opposed Which, to the last mogul. The last harpoon. No. No. Okay. Sorry. We don't we don't we don't rehearse these jokes. You, you only get them, jokes? You don't you only get them once. 
Uh, great performances. Bacall on Bogart. You must remember this. A tribute to Casablanca. All featurette stuff. Uh, as time goes by, the children remember deleted scenes. There's even some cartoons on here. Uh, and a 1947 uh, Vox Pop radio broadcast. So, I mean, all all nice, juicy goodies. But at the end of the day, really, the reason you're getting this is because it is a new transfer. It is a legitimate double dip. And... Uh, unless we get uh, some kind of a 2K home format at some point in the future, which would not be for years because to get a 2K television right now would cost you a, would set you back probably about uh, $15,000, and there are no broadcasts, and there's no material in 2K that you could put on it. So, um, you know, you're, you're probably a good 10, 15 years away from that. So for the time being, I would say this is a legitimate double dip. Mark? I agree. Totally agree. Totally agree. The only, the, the only thing with, with these really big ones is that you can't put them comfortably on your shelf because it, it's not the size of a regular That DVD. is true. It is oversized. Worth every little penny and every bit of space that it occupies. Uh, Mark, we, uh, we teased something at the end of the show last week in conjunction with the opening of The Hunger Games, which I think is on track to make, uh, what is it, $600 million this weekend? Uh, yes. That is a conservative estimate. Yeah. Something obnoxiously huge. By the way, did we talk about the Hunger Games? Did we? I, I, I believe a little bit. A little bit. What, what would you I, like to say? I just want to say, I you know, notwithstanding the story, which is like meh, you know, to me, I, I, I get it. It's like a mashup of a lot of things we've already seen before. But I thought that honestly, all other things being equal, that had to be the worst photographed major motion picture I've seen in in, in maybe thirty years. You know what's funny is that, is that I, I it's find just a, horrendous. I find a lot of people complaining about that, and that's not and and like the cinematography in a film is not something that people, the average Notice. Joe complains about. No, you're not notices, supposed to. You know, and uh, uh, people are just. Especially that first ten minutes. Oh, it's just the, awful. The, the super shaky cam. It's but it's shaky. It's too close. There are shots that are out of focus. It's flat. It's dull. There's no kind of color depth to it. I mean, everything that you use to a composition. What composition? It's like everything that you use to evaluate good cinematography was just thrown out the window for this movie. I, I don't know. I, and I'm trying to figure out was it a, a creative choice? Because it's not how Gary it Ross must, normally shoots his movies. Sea Biscuit is a gorgeous movie. I mean, Seabiscuit is a classically photographed film, so Gary Ross knows better. And did they? Was it so? Was it a conscious choice, or did they not have the time? Was, maybe they didn't have the time. Maybe they didn't have the time. I know they're shooting in North Carolina. It's a limited. You know, they, I mean, this was kind of you know compared to really huge blockbusters. This was a modest budget. Eighty million isn't modest by anybody's standard, but compared to you know John Carter and all these other movies, it's, it's a minuscule amount. So maybe that had something to do with it for, I don't know, but it just looks awful. Now, uh, I spoke to our friend Bob Strauss uh, at the um, Damsels in Distress screening, and he (laughs) said, he told me which scene uh, Soderbergh had done. You know, Steven Soderbergh did some second unit. Right. And, you know. Which I think the connection there is probably Steve Marioni. To be honest. Well, no, they've been friends for many years. Well, Steve, well, I I know Steve Marioni. No, no, like, like literally. Uh, St- Steven Soderbergh's book, which was released in like 2002 or something, mm-hmm. mentions that he and Ross go back. Oh, he and Gary Ross. He and Gary Ross. Okay, because Steve Marioni, Steve Marioni, who edited the movie, who edited Hunger Games, also won an Oscar for editing Traffic. Right. So, you Six know. Six degrees of separation. Oh, anyway, go. so uh, Ross had asked Soderbergh to do some second uniform. They're old friends. And our friend Bob Strauss knows which scene... Soderbergh did. Now, you have to understand, when, when you do second units, yes. you can't go in there and say, I'm going to make it black and white and change the aspect ratio and right. do whatever I want to do. You've got to match 
sure. what the director does. You can't Absolutely. really go too far off field. Yep. So uh, this is not a spoiler. It's just a scene. Yeah. So Soderbergh's Coin of Bob Strauss directed the the riot scene. There was a scene about two thirds of the way through the film when one of the districts mm-hmm. starts rioting. Yeah. It's a pretty brief scene, and it they is. actually and they actually. Uh, I think that, I think they the start, name, they start think, to rough up the, uh, the the those little Cossacks, whatever they call. Them. Yeah, the, the, well, the, there's actually I think that scene was called uh, Occupy District Four. Yes. 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 Uh, anyway, that's the scene that. Uh, so when you see the movie, about two thirds of the way through, there's a riot scene, and uh, that's the one that Soderbergh directed. Interesting. You know, the uh, the scene with Pontius Pilate in uh, the Greatest Story Ever Told was directed by David Lean. Really? Just pointing that out. Mm-hmm. Really? Because George Stevens was completely out of his mind, couldn't get his arms around the movie. Anyway, uh, among the many movies that we think, uh, and uh, others are on the bandwagon on this too, that The Hunger Games uh, it rather uh, uh, unavoidably rips off, and we could throw Logan's Run, The Running Man, and a lot of other stuff in there. But the one that everybody always comes back to is Battle Royale. And um, Battle Royale clearly... The, the rights holders, at least, and at least in the United States, over at Anchor Bay, understand that this is a great opportunity. So, um, no surprise, this last week, the whiz-bang, beautiful, complete collection three-disc Blu-ray for Battle Royale was released by Anchor Bay in a, uh, an unbelievably beautiful and splashy set. And uh, if you don't know what Battle Royale is, um, this is a three-disc Blu-ray set with a, uh, a DVD on it as well. It's very similar to the um, Casablanca set, except it doesn't come in a box. It's just going to completely hog your shelf. But if you don't know what Battle Royale is, basically, this is a movie by Japanese director Kinji Fukasaku before he passed away. Kinji Fukasaku, one of the great um, all-time gangster directors in uh, Japan, and uh, basically made just Yakuza films most of his career. But then he did a movie called Battle Royale. And uh, Battle Royale, which was made 12 years ago, unbelievable, is essentially uh, a kind of a, a, not a, it's a near future uh, neo-fascistic tale uh, in which the government uh, basically takes 10 teenagers and uh, puts them into this hunting game where they have to kill each other for sport. And uh, it is it is absolutely brilliant. It is bloody. It is horrific. It is sociologically deeply, deeply disturbing. And if you've seen The Hunger Games, you're going to watch this and you're going to go, well, there's a lot, obviously a lot of stuff. You know, you don't have Stanley Tucci with the blue hair and all of the weird uh, district stuff and all that kind of, uh, you know, post-apocalyptic, you know, politics. That's not going on here. But in terms of what this says about our primal nature and what you can do to us and what we can do to each other and all of that stuff, all that kind of Lord of the Flies stuff, it's pretty great. It It, it is great. I love this And movie. you know what? The thing with The Hunger Games that people have to uh, remember is that part of the reason why it's not unbelievably brutal, like Battle Royale is unbelievably brutal, is that... Um, uh, Hunger Games is based on a young adult novel. Exactly. So it's going to be a young adult movie. Whereas Kenji Fukasaku made Battle Royale as a preteen movie. So they're not at all in the same group. This is this is like in Japan, this is rated 
Um, no one over eight allowed. <laughs> this is rated. No one can show up. <laughs> this is so bloody. This is rated. No parents allowed. <laughs> only only prepubescent children. Bring a toy. This is, actually, this is rated NC. Nobody. <laughs> Nobody's allowed into the theater during the showing of this movie. Anyway, there's That's a lot how of bloody. It is been a lot of discussion on the internet about uh, Battle Royale and whether or not uh, Hunger Games ripped it off, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you know what? Tarantino loves this movie. This is uh, he's reportedly. Uh, said that this is the movie he wishes he could have made. Um, this uh, this has two different versions of Battle Royale on it, uh, both of which are just incredibly bloody. And then uh, it also has uh, Battle Royale uh, 2 Requiem, the sequel, which is not anything to really scream about. And uh, loads and loads and loads of extras on the uh, on the fourth disc, which is a DVD. So all of your extras, which in, you know include special effects, featurettes, and things from, uh, a little bit from the Tokyo International Film Festival in 2000, and... Uh, a really good documentary. All that stuff is a DVD, so uh, don't um, don't expect high def on any of your special features. But the movie itself, as a high def transfer, is really really terrific. I mean, it's uh, it's a well photographed film. It's uh, been released. I had actually prior to getting this, I I had uh, used the import more. I had an import, a nice Japanese import, in a little tin. It was a beautiful DVD, but this blows it away. Now you got something new. Sure do. Now you can slaughter teenagers in full high definition. Sure do. You know, they were supposed to remake this thing. You know, like this is a few years ago. They were, actually, Neil Moritz was supposed to remake it. Oh, gosh. But uh, I'm so sick of it. It would never happen. It would just never happen. And uh, while we're plowing through foreign, uh, I want to give another quick little shout out to a, a new Blu ray that f- comes to us from Music Box Films, uh, which I, I have to give all kinds of praises to because this, is, this went under everybody's radar and for good reason, too. Uh, Gensburg, A Heroic Life. If you don't know who Serge Gensburg is or was, uh, you're really missing out. Serge Gensburg was. Um, one of the legendary music figures in the history of world music, uh, primarily known in France, but significantly throughout Europe and to a much, much smaller degree in the United States. Although, although you might know his daughter. You might know his daughter, Charlotte Gensborg, who, uh, of course, does a lot of movies and is one best actress at the Cannes Film Festival and shows up. Uh, she speaks fluent English because her mom is Jane Birkin, who is a, uh, an English actress. But, uh, her, yep, this is, this is her dad. Uh, who has written some of the most amazing and scandalous songs of all time? I, I will only say "Je T'aime," the uh, the song that he sang with his then I, I think I don't know if they were married at the time, but with Charlotte's mom, Jane Burke, and originally written to be a duet with um, uh, Brigitte Bardot, is it, it's just hysterical. It has it has an orgasm solo in it for crying out loud. When I was living in France just before Gensburg died and when Charlotte was sort of coming of age, uh, he and Charlotte did a, a, a duet together where she's completely off key through the whole thing and the name of the song was Lemon Incest. Yeah. So, and that was a big hit back in mid-80s. So, you know, um, yeah. You know what my favorite Surge song is? Huh? Bonnie and Clyde. It's such a good song. I like that song. It really is. Look it up, people. Bonnie anyway, and Clyde. This is, uh, this is a film that was uh, here in Los Angeles, uh, debuted at the City of, City of Light, City of Angels Film Festival, Colcoa. And uh, I got to tell you, it is, it is a terrific film. Eric Elmosnino, who won the Cesar for this, and whom you've seen in a lot of other movies, um, the way he is made up, not with any makeup. They just do his hair right, and he just acts the part. He is the spitting, scary image of Serge Gensburg. Um, and uh, much of the film is a little bit odd. There's sort of this um, this surrealistic sub sub. It's not really a subplot, but there's a surrealistic through line that, where Gensburg is constantly sort of confronting his Jewishness and whether or not that's going to uh, that really is a, sort of an insurmountable 
handicap in his life or whether or not it's an aid to him in some way, whether or not it strengthens him. And this all kind of comes, begins in the aftermath of, you know, post-Holocaust Paris, post-World War II Paris as he's growing up. I can answer that, by the way. Yes, answer it. Being Jewish is an aid if you work in Hollywood, but it's bad for your digestion. (laughs) And I should know. (laughs) Well, anyway, this is an unbelievable performance, a great film, Uh, not a traditional biopic, but it's a a really, really good movie. You should check it out. Eric Almosnino's performance is fantastic. The Music Box Blu-ray, very nicely done. Don't think that little companies can't do great Blu-rays. It really is a well-photographed film, very nicely transferred, first rate all the way through. Wait, now that we're talking about uh, decadent and uh, perverse movies, yes. let's talk about Love Exposure. You love Love Exposure. Love Exposure is a Japanese film from 2008, and uh, it was very controversial. It is uh, four hours long, oh, and it includes all sorts of uh, really deep, dark, religious, sexual perversities. Lovely. You know, there's a uh, character who really, really, really wants to cut off her father's penis. That's nice. Does she do that? I'll let you decide. <laughs> I'll let you see yourself. Uh, this thing actually got a lot of um, a lot of positive praise. It's really hard to sit through. I mean, it's it, not that it's not a good movie. It got but a just, lot of votes when we were voting for uh, our, our year end awards. It really did. It, 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 I was I was shocked. I couldn't believe how many times this kind of popped up. Not not enough, obviously, to really be a contender. But it was like, geez, a lot of people in the room really like this movie. Well, this thing. Look, this thing and, won and a I bunch dis- of awards. I don't dislike it, but it's like. Do I really want to watch it again? Well, Not really. No, but I'll tell you, it, it won awards at Berlin. It won awards at, uh, at the Yokohama Film Festival, yeah. you know, Asian Pacific Screen Awards. I mean, it won a bunch of awards, but um, it's really something you got to sit through. You know, there's a lot of, uh, there's, there's a lot of Catholic imagery because in the film, it takes place in this Catholic family with this, uh, with this like, priest who sins all the time and, and the kid who decides, who's totally straight-laced and decides that, you know, he's going to go on a... On a on a sin parade and starts sinning everywhere and it just gets really, really dark and he dresses in drag and all this sort of crazy stuff that goes on. The thing is that it's four hours long. I, I, I would say that if, if, you, if you could take all this sin and all this perversity and shove it into 90 minutes, this would be a lot better. A sin parade, huh? Yes. Do they have that on, uh, on New Year's Day? Uh, yes, on New, a sin parade? Yeah. There's a joke there somewhere. If I just knew that line was coming about 30 seconds earlier, I could come up with something funny. Uh, we got a couple of criterions this week. One's a documentary. We'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, but we also have your Letter Never Sent by Mikhail Kalatozov. Or Kalatozov. Or Kalatozov. I'm sure our listener, Alexander Berlika, will uh, email us and tell us exactly how that's supposed to be pronounced. Uh, this is from 1959. This is a, uh, a pretty terrific uh, Russian movie. From you know that that Soviet cinema period where uh, there were actually relatively few really great international films. There were a lot of you know great directors working, but the constraints of censorship at the time didn't uh, necessarily allow for a lot of really great films to break out. And uh, this is one of them. This is I mean there's maybe twenty or thirty I think from the, that whole period that you could really say are just legitimate international cinema masterpieces. And this is this one really comes close. I don't know if this is like really at the top tier for me, but it's it's awfully close. I think in some respects this probably reminds me a little bit of uh, Dersu Uzala, the Akira Kurosawa film that was actually technically a Russian production and the one film of Kurosawa's that won uh, the Best Foreign Language Oscar. This is a uh, this is a beautifully photographed survival epic. Uh, basically about four guys in Siberia who are looking for diamonds and um, 
how you know just the that the politics of that relationship that uh, survival experience really really uh, really fascinating really nicely done and uh, not at all what you would expect from um, certainly Soviet cinema at this time. It's a, it's a very personal film. It's not something that sort of has a lot of um, sociological ideas. There's no socialist realism in it. It really is a character study, and it's a beautiful character study. Very nice. Uh, not thick on the extras. There's, uh, it's really terrific black and white photography, beautiful transfer on Blu-ray. Uh, as per usual with Criterion, you just can't ever complain about anything that they do. Basically, the uh, the main extra here is the um, uh, booklet, which has a, an a, uh, essay on the film in it by Dina Iordanova. And that, hopefully, is it for me mispronouncing people's names this week. I think you might have done a good job with, e- with what? Iordanova? Something like that. Well done. Yeah, I'm not going to give it a second shot. Speaking of well done is a uh, little film you've never heard of, but uh, if you want sort of a light little... Uh, fun upstairs downstairs type comedy you should check out the women on the sixth floor this is a um film from uh last year and uh it is about this uh bourgeois couple living in a big huge cold mansion and uh, in paris in 1960 and uh their kids are away at boarding school it has and, fabrice lucchini in it i love him uh that is true it also has uh, uh what's her name um uh carmen mora from all the yes uh, we uh, love the carmen Amadora mora films. yes anyway so um the uh the, the man of the house uh learns about all the servants who live on the sixth floor and the servants who live on the sixth floor are of course all these underappreciated uh men and women and they're all they all have a great time it's like it's like the people in steerage. It's like in Titanic. It's yes. like uh, you know, the people in steerage versus the people in the first class. And it's just classic upstairs, downstairs stuff. But you know what? It's very lighthearted, and I thought it was kind of cute, and I didn't expect anything out of it. In fact, it, look, it looked kind of lame, at least based on the DVD box. I had never seen it, but uh, it's cute. And so this, uh, this socialite, um, this you know, rich bourgeois guy, g- g- climbs up to the sixth floor, meets all the, qu- meets all the servants, goes into their quarters, m- makes friends with a lot of them. They're all you know, sassy maids, and they teach them that, you know, there's what life is all about. It's not all about uh, you know, money and whatnot, which, of course, is not true. Um, life is about money. Um, <laughs> anyway, there's uh, no bonus features in this thing, so that's kind of lame. But you know what? It's a nice little movie. The Women on the Sixth Floor. I was very surprised. Very sweet. Uh, another couple of great uh, Italian films out this week. Two Lucino Visconti movies from E1 Entertainment. They're doing a really good job. This is part of their um, Italian neorealist cinema series. They're releasing a lot of these. And these are two Visconti films, Bellissima from 1951 and La Terra Trema from 1948. Uh, Bellissima is basically kind of a neorealist version of Gypsy without the music and without the stripping and without Natalie Wood. By the way, new version of Gypsy with uh, Barbara Streisand playing mom. Yeah. It's going to be great. going to love it. Fabulous. Going to be written by uh, UK, 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 baby? I, I dropped the head. The head That's great. Uh, going to be written by uh, Julian Fellows. Julian Fellows is going to write it. I think we talked about that last week when we, we covered. Uh, You're talking Downton about a lot Abbey. of stuff this week. I'm we talking about, about last week. Anyway, Bellissima, basically about a, a mother who wants to uh, you know, push her, her daughter to become a star, um, but in a very different kind of a way. This isn't like, you know, crazy. This is like. She's not like a crazy stage mom like we always run into in, in New York or in Los Angeles. It's, my daughter is the greatest. No, that's not this. 
This is uh, neorealism. It is beautiful. It is, uh, it is meaningful. It is heartfelt, like all Visconti films. But the real gem here is La Terra Trema, which was uh, a big deal throughout the world in 1948. It was one of the uh, early kind of breakthrough uh, neorealist films. All non-actors here, kind of like in The Bicycle Thieves. Um, and uh, takes place in a, it's a, about a, a family in a fishing village, and it, there's very much a class thing going on. So there's a lot of interesting commentary about the state of post-war Italy here and some of the, uh, the class and cultural division vestiges that have remained after uh, pushing out Mussolini. Um, but it's, it's really pretty gut-wrenching, and I would say if you want to commit suicide, you will watch this uh, in, a, in a double feature with The Bicycle Thieves. It's, uh, it'll be lovely. You'll... You'll, or, or else you'll just never want to go to Italy. I like, you know what? I have to say that although it's more, it's uh, uh, more accurate to say bicycle thieves. I liked it more when it was called the bicycle thief. I know everybody because does. Because you think that the bicycle thief is the guy who stole the bike at the beginning of the movie. You think that it, the movie's named after him. Actually, the, the bicycle thief is the guy, is the dad. See, it's the twist, it's the yes. twist that makes yes. it ironic. But now it's bicycle thieves. So it's kind of both of them. It takes, you know what, he should rename. He, he, yeah. he should rise from the dead and uh, rename that movie. I'm going to spend very little time talking about this next film. Uh, House of Pleasures was uh, some kind of big deal at Cannes and Toronto. And uh, this film is just deeply, deeply unpleasant to watch. It is uh, directed by Bertrand Bonello. And I just don't understand why this was a big deal at all. This is a, uh, a French language film. It, I, here, here, let me put it this way. Um, there was a a much much better film some years ago along s- somewhat similar lines, directed by Patrice Leconte called Rue des Plaisirs, uh, which is you know both of these are about uh, life in Parisian brothels during that period just before they were made illegal or technically illegal they're still around but when it's sort of like the glory days of the Parisian brothel right oh the good old days when you know syphilis and uh, the clap just were allowed to go unrestrained everywhere. Uh, anyway, Rue de Plaisir is more of a character piece. It's a lovely film. I won't get into that. It's a Patrice Leconte film. Patrice Leconte can do no wrong ever. Uh, this thing is just, it's just twisted. And there really isn't much of a plot. It's just a bunch of whores and a lot of Johns and a lot of horrible things that go on, including in one episode a, 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 a sadist who deforms one of the, the prostitutes. And it's really pretty horrific. And it's really awful. And. The film is meant, obviously, to be kind of a lesson in how degraded this lifestyle is, but it doesn't really go anywhere. And it's, it's photographed in the most unbelievably pretentious Peter Greenaway style, and it just drove me crazy, and I can't handle it. So I'm not going to say anything more about it. That's it. House of Pleasures, if, if you want to take the plunge, be my guest. I don't support it. Uh, what I do support is a, uh, another surprise, much like uh, The Women on the Sixth Floor, it's a film called Mozart's Sister. It's a film by Rene Ferre. And uh, I did not know this film existed until I watched it uh, here on Blu-ray. And it's good. It is about, wait for it, Mozart's sister. Mozart had a sister? Mozart had a sister. And it turns out that not only did Mozart have a sister, but the sister was, was quite gifted. And the problem with, the, with Mozart's sister being gifted was that, obviously, back uh, in the day, there were very strict gender rules that had to be adhered to, and Mozart's sister was not allowed to play the violin in this film, or in real life, too, but because uh, the violin was not seen as a woman's instrument, and she uh, couldn't really compose, because uh-huh. that was not seen as a woman's work, so she wound up playing the harpsichord, yeah, there it is. and she was uh, very good at it, and... Um, the uh, the film is just terrific. You know what? It, it's very much of, obviously, it's a... 
you have to understand that that even though Mozart's sister uh, couldn't do what she really wanted to do, which is play the violin and compose, um, she and and, and in, in the movie the father who who is loving but strict, the father's the one who sort of he uh, he's the one who administers you know these edicts to the family of what what the sister and the brother can and can't do. The the father in, in a film like this, the father would normally be seen as like a real villain yeah. for not letting the daughter do what she wants to do. But you know what? This is the uh, what is this the seventeen uh, hundreds or something crazy like that. Um, uh, he was just really just. This was how it was during that time. During that time, Sweet. he was just uh, you know women did this and men did that, and that was the end of it. So her story is a little bit tragic, and um, the actress who plays uh, Mozart's sister is terrific. And it's funny too because the actor uh, who plays uh, Mozart, not Tom Hulse, like in the Oscar-winning film, but David Moreau, who plays it uh, plays Amadeus a little differently, but still terrifically. And mm. uh, it's a nice little movie. Mozart's uh, sister is what it is, and there's like no. Um, special features on it. Well, but it's a nice Blu-ray. Yes, it is. Yeah, yes, it is. Um, anyway, uh, uh, I'm just so tired of talking about this show. <laughs> you finally hit your. I know it was about a few months ago that you hit your saturation point, but they keep coming, Mark. I don't know what they're to not going to stop. Nope. The, the, as long as there are exploitation films to make fun of, we always will have. Well, well here's that's your cue. We always we'll always have, have mystery science theater. The yeah. thing is that is that the the show is done, but the show is on for over ten years. Yeah. So now we're on mystery science theater three thousand box set twenty three. Oh, jeez. And honestly, if these were worth anything, I'd probably sell them all back and buy the Casablanca Blu-ray. <laughs> actually, you know what? I'm I'm actually not going to double dip on that Casablanca Blu-ray. I'm I'm going to keep the old Blu-ray. Well, you do that. I'm going to do that. This one, uh, this mystery science includes uh, King, uh, King Dinosaur, the Castle of Fu Manchu, codenamed Diamond Hero, uh, codenamed Diamond Head, which is the funniest of the four, mm. and Last of the Wild Horses. Mm. There are mini posters here. There's a new introduction from Frank Conniff, who I've seen live perform. He's very funny. Um, and there's a, there's a funny thing on Quinn Martin. Quinn uh, Martin? Yes. A funny, th- a funny little short on Quinn Martin. And uh, it's good stuff. I do love Mystery Science. I just don't need to own 23 of these. You know, what I uh, what drove me absolutely bonkers, and I, I didn't want to have to see it. I had to see it for radio. Um, and gosh, I was just so upset that I did. Alvin and the Chipmunks chipwrecked. You know, I saw the original, the first Alvin and the Chipmunks. I thought it was just horrible and painful and agonizing to sit through. And then, thank goodness, for I didn't actually have to see uh, the second one with the chipettes. And I just, I, I dropped onto my knees and I, I offered a prayer and I just said, thank you. Thank you for not putting me through that. And then I must have done a very bad thing in life because I wound up having to see this one. You know, here's the deal. Um, this has the chipmunks and the chipettes in it. And uh, it's it's silly. They're on, the, they're on a boat, and, on a cruise ship, and Alvin, the, the whole plot is around how Alvin won't grow up. He keeps doing mischievous things that Dave tells him not to do. And sure enough, on the boat, he still gets into trouble. They don't stay inside their, uh, their, uh, their, their, what do you call it? The room. They call what they call them? Their, their, there's, a, there's a name on a ship for a room. Cabin? You, no, you're, yeah, maybe it's cabin. I don't know. Whatever. That's where you stay. You stay in your cabin. You stay in your cabin. So they don't stay in their, uh, in their cabin. And, uh, he goes out and he, anyway, long story short, they wind up, uh, Go all falling overboard and uh, get you know wind up on an island Gilligan's Island style and then Dave and Dave Cross 
whose name I always forget in these movies. You know, Dave Cross is the plays the uh, the record magnate who uh, you know w- screwed them up in the first movie and needs to get them back in the second one anyway. He somehow winds up in this as a guy who's doing some bizarre children's entertainment in a, in a costume on the ship. It makes no sense. And then it's just – it's horrible. This is like a really long, drawn-out, bad episode of Gilligan's Island. It's just terrible. <sighs> Did you like it? No. I didn't see it. I, I, you know, I but, but it was the, the only – <laughs> the only memorable part of this was that there were a lot of us sitting together when this movie started. We were all on the Fox lot. I was sitting in the same row with Michael Reshaffen and Claudia, Claudia Puig, USA Today, Michael Reshaffen from Hollywood Reporter. Um, uh, Christy Lemire was sitting right in front of me. And uh, I forget who was sitting with Christy. Anyway, there were, there were a bunch of us. It was a bit of a support group. And uh, I, just, I just instinctively, when the movie started, there's a version of The Go-Go's Vacation um, sung by the Chipettes in that really high-pitched voice. And as soon as you hear vacation, I'll ever want it, it just, I just lost it. And I just went, oh, geez. And then I heard Claudia and Christy start cracking up. And I thought, okay, we'll, we'll be here for each other. It'll be good. It'll be good. You were like a support group. We were a support group. It, it wasn't very good, though. We didn't support each other very well. No one walked out. You know, I'd rather see Chipmunks. Uh, I'd rather see any Chipmunks movie than see Breaking Wind. Breaking Wind is a, a no-budget uh, spoof of the um, Twilight films, directed by a guy named Craig Moss, who does uh, who's done a couple of these films, and they're all just horrible, horrible, horrible films. And they're not funny, and uh, they're all you know obsessed with bodily functions and whatnot. It's like it's just it's all very stupid. juvenile. It's it's just so painfully juvenile. It's like. Come on! I mean, it just—it just kills me that this guy gets work. I mean, I somebody paid Craig Moss to direct this film, mm-hmm. and somebody paid Craig Moss to direct uh, the other film he did, the forty-one-year-old virgin who knocked up Sarah Marshall and felt super bad about it. That <laughs> oh, was his geez. previous film. Oh, help us all! So it's a no-name cast and uh, not funny, and uh, just—it's just painful. Breaking Wind. Boo. Please ignore it. Angelina Jolie made her directing debut uh, a few months ago in the land of blood and honey. Uh, this is a really interesting movie. It's a fascinating film. It's a really good film. And uh, it's in Serbo-Croatian, believe it or not. The, um, this is a Blu-ray DVD combo disc that I've got in my hands right here. And in the land of blood and honey essentially tells the story of the, the Balkans War, the Bosnian War. Uh, beginning in Sarajevo, and it's a story of, a, of a, a, you know, it starts as a beautiful romance between this couple. They're all Bosnian actors, and uh, then you know she loves him, he loves her. They're dancing in the uh, in the in the club, and then next thing you know, the war breaks out, and suddenly uh, she's on the wrong side, and he's on. Well, they're they're each on the wrong side, but she is, you know, obviously the it is the Christian militia that is taking control, uh, committing horrible atrocities left and right, trying to purge the land of, of Muslims. She's Muslim. And her uh, her guy turns out to be the son of a major general, played by uh, Rade Serbeja. And Rade Serbeja, a modern major general, is he vegetable or oh, mineral? See, why do we go there? Anyway, Rade always plays these bad guys, and uh, you know he's very conflicted about it. And it is it is the story of that relationship now that they find themselves in a kind of a weird Romeo and Juliet situation, unable to really carry on their relationship as they wished and being torn apart by religion and politics and all the rest of that. Uh, it's, it's really a, a unbelievable... If you didn't know that Angelina Jolie directed this movie, you'd swear that like some 75-year-old Eastern European auteur had done this. I mean, it is a really, really incredibly mature film. 
Um, beautifully, beautifully done. There is also an English version of this, which I do not recommend. Um, stick with the uh, stick with the uh, the Bosnian language version, which got it a Golden Globe nomination for Best Foreign Language Film. It is uh, it is a superb movie. Not much by way of special features, just some deleted scenes in a, in a featurette. Uh, and there is a Q and A on here with Angelina Jolie and her lead actress, which is fine. But the movie itself is really worth watching. Even if you don't feel like you might want to own it, definitely watch it because it's just amazing how accomplished she is as a filmmaker. I'm so impressed. Yeah, hopefully she'll uh, uh, come back to America and do like a like a Chipmunks sequel, <laughs> which is usually what happens. <laughs> Can <you> imagine <laughs> Chipmunks four. Chipmunks on Parade, directed by Angelina Jolie. Oh, that would be terrible. You know, I went to the uh, the first, actually, uh, uh, public screening of Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, and at the time, it was uh, barely going to be ready for release. I mean, they, they, like, the release this was date... The, I know, we were wondering about this. We were getting ready to vote, and everybody was sending emails back and forth. Has anybody heard about any screenings? And then suddenly, it was like, it was like seven days before we voted, there were 75 screenings. Well, I went to the first one, yeah. and, and Stephen Daldry stood up in front of us and said, this is the first public screening of the film. And uh, the film, which uh, stars Tom Hanks and Sandra Bullock, unspools. And at the end, everybody's in rapturous applause. And I'm looking at my friends saying, what the hell was that? was terrible. Yeah. That was, this, is just a, this is just a precocious, insufferable, self-regarding piece of crap. You've got to be kidding. Mm-hmm. And uh, the movie's about um, uh, Thomas Horn, who was a, uh, this kid that, they, that uh, Stephen Daldry plucked, believe it or not, from uh, Jeopardy. This kid had won like Teen Jeopardy. And the kid is fantastic. I mean, the, I mean, here's the thing: the the way he's directed is horrible. He's directed to be the most insufferable kid who ever lived. Yeah, true. But but Horn, the boy, is great. And after the film, there was a Q and A, and and the kid was there, and he was saying how he probably doesn't want to act anymore. This maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. He didn't seem that enamored with the process. Um, but I hope not, because he seems very, very present and very, very smart. And uh, I wish he was not directed to be the kids you just want to punch in the nose actually I wanted to punch this whole movie in the nose in the movie uh, uh, Thomas Horn plays a kid who's trying to uh, trying to get over the death of his father played by Tom Hanks in uh, 9-11 and so in order to do that he finds this key imagine that the most obvious symbol in the world a key and so he finds this key and uh, the key was his father's but he doesn't know what uh, what box or what drawer or what, what this key opens so he runs all around New York Asking people whose last name is Black, I won't get into why he winds up doing that, um, whether they know what this key opens. And that's what he does, the whole film. He, did, he does part of this with a tambourine in his hand. And so I wanted to actually punch uh, the tambourine I, in the nose. I, I, there's one, there there's only, one good scene with Jeffrey Wright. Oh, my gosh. He, he, you know what? That scene with Jeffrey Wright, and you can tell, he is working his tail off. To carry this film, to make that scene work in spite of everything else. I mean, he, he, it's, it's amazing. You almost see him sweat blood just trying to make this all work. And it, it, it's almost like, you know, trying to take, you know, ro- take a rowboat against the tide. It just, it, it's not going to work. But it's, it's amazing to see how much he does in that one scene to actually just come off as like the, the rose in a, in a big pile of poo. Yeah, I mean, this thing is striving for importance so hard, and it wants to be important so bad. It wants to be a, a meaningful film for our time so desperately that it winds up just being cheap. It just being che- it winds up being true. cheap and almost insulting. So I really, de- I really did not like this film at all. Extremely loud and incredibly close. Uh, it does look good on Blu-ray, and there's a bunch of special features on it, uh, including a making of and the way they found uh, the kid Thomas Horn. 
And, uh, you know, Max von Sydow, he's in it. He was an Oscar nominated. This film was nominated for a, uh, a, a Best Picture Oscar, I would imagine mostly on the strength of older Oscar voters. Probably, because I, I saw it at, uh, in a daytime screening with just a ton of older SAG members, mostly, and they loved it. And it did wind up getting you know nominated for Best Picture, so obviously somebody liked it. I just don't get it. How could you like it? It's just so terrible. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Mark, when, when the hell's Earth Day? Earth Day? Yeah. I don't know. What's Earth Day? Is, is there an Earth Day? There's an Earth Day. Isn't it in March or something? I, I think it is. Are uh, we in March did, now? Did it, did it come? Did it I go? Well, be, I'm wondering because we've got a bunch of eco-documentaries here, um, which we should make mention of real quickly. Uh, one is Solar Taxi, Around the World with the Sun, uh, a green road trip. April 22nd. April twenty second. So see, we're we're that's what it is. We're uh, we're about four weeks away. So they're getting these things out right now. Uh, this is uh, this is this uh, kind of unusual road trip that begins in uh, the summer of two thousand and seven, um, and this guy uh, named Lewis Palmer built this thing that he calls a solar taxi, which is like this. It, it's like the a thing it, with the solar taxis, and yeah. it, it also doesn't pick up black people. <laughs> it's just strange. Wow. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for going there. Uh, anyway, it's, uh, you know, it's essentially this weird ecological road trip that he takes in his in his solar taxi car, which is like his little eco car. And anyway, it's all about uh, kind of publicizing uh, renewability and all this, you know, yada, yada, yada. We know the drill. Anyway, um, is it, it's not a terribly interesting film. It's not a boring film. I, I guess if you're concerned about all those issues, Mark and I aren't. We, we're staunch polluters. Um, you know what? Honestly, when, I, when, when I'm driving down the freeway, I throw my garbage out of my car. That's, I do, too. I roll down the window, throw my garbage out. How does Phil feel about that? <laughs> Who? Phil. Isn't Phil the garbage you throw out of your car? Never mind. I so didn't get that. I know. It's because it's too early in the morning. Isn't Phil the garbage you throw out of your car? Oh, never mind. No, 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 no. Don't stop the recording. What does that mean? I don't know. You and Phil have this this hysterical relationship, and I just thought I'd I'd, I'd go for a, a, a lame joke. Oh, you mean Phil like our friend Phil? Yeah. Okay, that's great. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was setting you up for something. I, it, you know what? We should just pretend the last okay. 30 seconds didn't happen. Okay. We'll don't do stop that. the recording. I'm not. Uh, we also have a movie here from Docurama called Fresh. Uh, which will go along with movies like Food, Inc. and make you never, ever want to eat anything ever again. Um, maybe not so much. This is, this is really just kind of a, a look into the um, process of... Like, whereas Food, Inc. made you depressed about everything that you eat, this is really just sort of educational about how food is processed and how it's created and the process by which it goes from being grown and farmed to showing up in your market. Because it doesn't just originate in the market like a lot of us used to think. Um, and it's fine. It's, uh, it's, it's informative more than it is terribly entertaining. And then we also have a thing here called bag it. Uh, is your life too plastic? Plastic bags have suddenly become really, really taboo everywhere. And uh, even to the point, I don't know if you know this, Mark, but in your old haunting ground in Santa Monica, uh, if you ask for a, a, a bag now, well, first of all, plastic bags, not allowed, illegal at all the markets. If you ask for a paper bag, you have to pay like a, a nickel. So what are, you, what are you supposed to carry your groceries by hand home? Br- bring your own bag. Bring your own in little Santa Monica? Re- in Santa Monica. Is, bring is, bring is your own a, little renewable bag. Is that a 
Citywide ordinance. Really? Yes. When did that happen? I don't know, like six months ago or That's something. That's horrifying. <laughs> so if I go to if I go to Ralph's, which is the major supermarket yes. chain in yes. Southern California, so mm-hmm. if I go to Ralph's in Santa Monica, they beg my groceries. I'm not gonna I'm no. not gonna bring. Six... They're gonna say to you. They're gonna say to you. Uh, this is how much your groceries are twenty nine ninety five or whatever. And would you like to pay an extra nickel for uh, bags? Really? And you say no, thank you. I I have my bag in my back pocket, and you whip it out and you. Open it up and put your groceries in your personal bag, and you carry them out. No, you know what I would say? I would say, okay, that's fine, and I would take one item at a time to my car. <laughs> that's what I would do. I'd just take one item at a time. Oh, uh, well, anyway. That is wild. Yeah, no, it's true. That's true. So, anyway, this is uh, this, this, movie, this movie called Bag It stars, uh, features Jeb Barrier. And he uh, he's your tour guide on um, into you know what plastic prim- primarily plastic bags do to us ecologically to the uh, to the earth to everything else. It's a it's kind of depressing actually. So Earth Earth Day is a time to cry, and that's what those are all about. Um, let's see. Hold on. We should uh, you know I got wait, let's go got these other docs over here. Um, or Mark, do you want to you want to do the music, or should I do these docs? Do the docs. Do the docs. All right, we've got other our other Criterion release this year. Uh, this year, today, this week, the War Room, uh, tremendous documentary by uh, Chris Haggadis and D. A. Pennebaker, two of the great documentarians still working. This is a Criterion release of that uh, on Blu-ray, mind you, of that great 1993 look into the uh, the War Room of the Clinton campaign, and it is still one of the great all-time political documentaries. It is absolutely outstanding. It uh, is as timely today as it was then. And um, it really, you know, James Carville is sort of the star of this thing. And oh, you get, young he looks in that. It's just, it's insane. But you obviously get a lot of the other, uh, you know, Clinton figures, uh, Stephanopoulos and Begala, a lot of people who are still out there as pundits on various uh, news networks. They are very uh, crucial to this as well. But what you really learn from this is uh, just what a rough and tumble, incredibly calculating and brutal world it is to run a campaign. And you emerge from this thinking, why would anyone want to have anything to do with a campaign? I don't care how much you think you're saving the world or doing good. Why would you want to be a candidate? And why even less would you want to be in the unbelievably horrible position of being one of the grunt workers on a campaign who gets no glory and has to do all the work. It's just, it's horrible. Because to them, you're doing your little part uh, to be a part of history. No, take a consultancy job, enjoy your life, go on a vacation, something. Wait, just wow! But but it's a great, it's a great uh, Blu-ray. It's a fabulous Blu-ray, and you know, it's not like it's going to blow you away the way it's shot. It's a documentary, you know. It's uh, it's not like they lit all these scenes, and so they just, oh my gosh, wow, George Stephanopoulos in high def, you're so good looking, and you know, Carville in high def is not something you want to do to a television. It just isn't. It really isn't. So, uh, but a lot of great special features on here. uh, A really good panel discussion uh, that was hosted by the William J. Clinton Foundation that uh, features Carville and. And uh, Vernon Jordan and uh, Ron Brownstein, who was then uh, with the LA Times, and um, I liked Ron Brownstein. I did too. He was really good. You know, I was in I was in a green room with him once. It was painted green. It, well, you know, we were we were. It was a CNN thing, and uh, he went on to talk about something, and then and I was waiting there to do something about m- movies openings. I can't remember what it was, but we were here at CNN in LA, and we were in the green room together, and I was just sitting there, you know, enjoying myself. Dude was working. 
Brownstein was sitting there. He was he had a phone. He had his laptop open. He was like working. And he was saying something important. He goes, "Yeah, I was talking to them, and they were they were saying that when they when the when the UN Council meets and he's doing his whole little spiel. It was like, dude, do you ever like play Tetris or anything? What what's the man lighten up? But anyway, well, that's what that's what makes him Ron Brownstein. I know, I know. These guys, they all work hard. Look at us, lazy bums. Uh, but anyway, the and this also features the return of the war room. We should point out the. Um, uh, 2008 documentary that was, you know, kind of a kind of a follow up, um, but really the War Room, great, beautiful, excellent, outstanding Blu-ray, um, another fine, fine, fine release from Criterion. Is that right, Wade? It is. And uh, let's see. Also, here is a thing called War: Women Art Revolution. This is uh, the definitive history of feminist art. And even though it uh, features a lot of people that I don't really consider artists like Miranda July, uh, it, it is actually a pretty, interesting, uh, a pretty interesting documentary. This comes to us from Zeitgeist, and um, it, uh, it's, it's kind of a, an askew look at um, what we cons- would consider feminist art, because a lot of this isn't really, like you wouldn't look at a lot of this and go, oh my gosh, that's feminist art, look at that photograph, look at that painting, look at that movie or whatever. Um, it sort of it pulls you aside and says maybe you should see feminism through a different lens. Maybe you need to kind of consider it in its historical context from the 1960s forward and how it's changed. And you know, so it really does uh, take some interesting twists and turns along the way. And uh, again, not a great documentary, but certainly uh, interesting, and it makes you think. And that that's worth something. I don't like thinking. Does me no good. There you go. What uh, music? Yes, here's music. what the music. Uh, there's two music Blu-rays out uh, this week. One is called the B-52s with the Wild Crowd, live in Athens, Georgia. B-52s, as you know, they are from Athens, Georgia, and uh, this is their home. This is their return to their hometown concert. This is good stuff. This was recorded in uh, February 2011th, and uh, you know, it's actually it turns out to be the. Um, you know, they actually performed their very first gig on Valent- in February, on Valentine's Day. In 1977. Really? No and uh, years later, they have returned. And you know what? I really do like the uh, B-52s. They're a strange little band. They're sort of a, a mashup of like post-punk and pop rock and all pop that. Pop rocks. I remember pop rocks. I, I, was, I was talking about pop rocks the other day. They're, they're cool. They are cool. Um, anyway, all their hits are here. Uh, they're sort of, a, I don't, you know what? I actually, they're a fun band to watch live, but I'd rather hear the music with the polish of a studio. Still, there's a lot of fun stuff in here. Uh, Love Shack, obviously, is their big hit. Rock Lobster was one of their early, early hits that uh, we all remember imitating when we were in school. Uh, Funplex, one of their most re- more, more recent hits. Also, um, one of their first big hits, Private Idaho. The reason why Private Idaho was famous is because Gus Van Zant liked the title Private Idaho so much that he used it as the basis for the title of his film, there My Own go. Private Idaho. So it's good stuff. B fifty twos. Also, in you think there've been a, you think there've been a lot of mystery science theater discs. Mm-hmm. There have been even more, possibly five times as many live at Montro discs. That's true. So now we have live at Montro two thousand four. Phil Collins. Now Phil Collins. Mm-hmm. Um, you know he. Uh, By the way, speaking yes. of Phil Collins, you do realize that the movie Mirror Mirror. That is coming out shortly. The, uh, the 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 spoofy Snow White thing with uh, Army Hammer playing the prince and uh, Julia Roberts playing the evil queen. Uh, that's all done. It's supposed to be like a, a kind of a Snow White thing. That's a little bit like the Princess Bride. The girl who plays Snow White. That's his daughter. I know Lily Collins. Yeah, Lily Collins is Phil Collins's daughter. That's right. Just pointing that out. Looks just like her dad. Just as bald. No, oh, wait a minute. 
Maybe not. Aww. Maybe that was Phil in drag. Never mind. Uh, we, sh- we should tell Phil we mentioned him twice. <laughs> should have been, been an email. Uh, anyway, there's two, uh, d- there's two concerts on this no, thing. I'm talking One about is this Phil Collins. Oh, sorry. Well, both are bald. Um, and the other Phil Co- isn't even a Phil Collins. No. We're screwing the whole Phil thing. Uh, Phil, we apologize. We love you, Phil. We do. I, I don't apologize. Um, in fact, I'm quite proud of it. <laughs> anyway, there's two concerts on this uh, Blu-ray. Uh, one is from 2004, and this was with the um, uh, this was with his band. They did a lot of uh, solo stuff. Obviously, Collins was also a member of Genesis back in the day. But the 2004 one includes "Against All Odds," "Don't Lose My Number," uh, you know, "Groovy Kind of Love." He, you know what? His music doesn't really hold up. But there's also another. Uh, concert here, which was done in 1996 with the Phil Collins Big Band, and that was also at Montreux, but again, it was from 1996. That includes some uh, old Genesis stuff like Invisible Touch. Um, there's also uh, another uh, rendition of uh, Against All Odds, uh, so you actually see that twice on this uh, on this Blu-ray. And, uh, of course, who, who doesn't love Susudio? You know, the only CD trade I ever made was I gave uh, actually a friend of, a friend of uh, Phil and myself I gave uh, our friend Benji the CD for Phil Collins' No Jacket Required, and my friend Benji gave me the CD, The Best of the Monkeys. Ah, oh, I don't know what that means. It means it was the only CD trade I ever made. Okay. And it, it involved Phil Collins and the late Davy Jones. Oh, Davy. Anyway, good stuff. The best. All right, uh, we only have a few minutes left. Um, let's make mention of, uh, let's see, a couple of things, real quick things here. Just a, one regular TV release this week that we should uh, probably point up if people are big fans of Eureka. This is Eureka Season 4.5. Uh, I, I don't know. This is, this is a sci-fi sh- series show. I don't know how many people actually watch this. Have you ever watched this? No. Yeah, I, I don't know how anybody even really watches this. But anyway... Um, this apparently has some – I mean, I looked a little bit online, and it seems like there's five or six people who uh, who really rapidly love this show. But um, anyway, uh, Universal releases all the sci-fi stuff since that they are, are sister companies or one owns the other, something like that. You're part of that whole thing, aren't you? Oh, yeah. The whole Comcast empire? We own everything. Yeah. Sci-fi, Bravo. Right. Well, anyway, this is a little bit like um, – I don't know. How would we put this? Uh, um Space 1999 meets Star Trek meets uh, Land of the Lost, except instead of going to prehistoric times, they go back to 1947. I, I, you know, it's it's a uh, it's a very strange uh, kind of mashup that isn't easy to explain. But uh, you know, Joe Morton's fine. Joe Morton's good. And then uh, lastly, uh, before we get too far from the Super Bowl, we now have Super Bowl. Um, what is that? Uh, XLVI. What, what, what is that? 40, uh, that would be 46. Six, 46. Thank you. hate my Roman numerals. New York Giants, Super Bowl 46 champions. Uh, this comes to us from Vivendi by way of uh, the NFL. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's all as, it's the, the friggin' New York Giants Super Bowl. The, uh, another one, what, what's the guy's name? The quarterback, the brother of the other guy who just changed teams. Eli Manning. That's it, that guy. There's Manning's. You, you like how I, I set that up for you? The brother of the other quarterback who just changed teams. And yet I knew. And that, yet you knew. See, we're, we're like an old married couple. We understand each other implicitly. 
Uh, so that's out there as well for all you New York Giants fans, and not many other people will really care because in three weeks, everyone will have forgotten who won the Super Bowl anyway. Does anyone really care? Everyone watches that show, and then every year, everyone just forgets about it instantly. Everyone watches the commercials and, uh, and considers it a good excuse to be social. That's what it is. That's very, what it is. Very few people, like a, a relatively small percentage of, the, of people who watch the Super Bowl really care yeah, really who wins. Care. I mean, maybe the fans of the teams playing. Otherwise, I just want to eat ribs. Well, you can email us at gods at digigods.com. You can send us emails. You can send us uh, your voice recordings for our Vox Box segment. You can uh, ask us all kinds of crazy questions. We will, we're, we're known to answer. Catch on the flip side. Time for me to peace out. Later, Gator. See ya. Wouldn't want to be ya. I'll be back. Hold down the fort. Till we meet again. Bye, Amazing Grace, which was written by a famous abolitionist, uh, John Newton, back in uh, 1779. And uh, really an extraordinary story that was uh, dramatized in the movie called Amazing Grace. But uh, I think the story that, uh, that Bill Moyers puts together here is much, much more engaging and fascinating and intriguing. And all the different performances and the different versions of it are just really deeply moving. Uh, absolutely a wonderful slice of history that you just won't get anywhere else or any other way. Because Bill Moyers is one of those rare, unique American talents. So, Mark, uh, for people who, who are out there using Match.com, using JDate, who are... <laughs> I feel sad for you. <laughs> I'm your competition. Part of your community. What, what's going on out there this week? What should they look for? Are they, are here's, they... here's, actually, you know what? Here's a piece of advice. Yes. When you're, when you're looking for women online, yes. and you know women, they, they have all sorts of photographs. Sure. You know, they have two, three, four, five yeah. photographs. The worst photograph is what they really look like.